in the midst of everything that could be perceived as negative that is going on, there is shelter for the soul. Welcome back to another episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood. Today's guest is an icon in the multi-generational Grateful Dead music scene. Best known for her contributions to the dead between 1972 and 79, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994. Her influence is far more reaching than many realize. Her career began in the 1960s as a teenage singer in the Muscle Shoals, Alabama music scene. It's a rare feat for someone to start a career singing backup vocals for legends like Cher, Dwayne Allman, Boss Skaggs, Neil Diamond, Percy Sledge, and the king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley. After parting ways with the Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia band, she performed as a group leader or co-leader of acts including Keith and Donna with her late husband, Keith Godshow, Heart of Gold Band, Kettle Joe's Psychedelic Swamp Review, Donna Jean Cott Show Band, and Donna Jean and the Tricksters. This year, she released a remix of her 2007 single, Shelter, that she co-wrote with Dark Star Orchestra's Jeff Madsen. It was recorded in her hometown community of Muscle Shoals, where she lives with her husband, David McKay, since 1994. You can see that she's come full circle. Please welcome the incomparable and unstoppable Donna Jean Godshow McKay. <laughs> well, hello, Thea, and thank you for having me on. This is a real pleasure, and I look forward to every every word of it. Oh, wonderful. Well, we're, I'm so pleased that you are here. This is really amazing to have somebody. I mean, we're talking, oh my gosh, six decades of music? Unfortunately <laughs> for me, <laughs> I think it's phenomenal and it just it makes my heart sing and it kind of gives me chills I have Aww. to tell you. I am thrilled. And also something that gave me chills. Am I right that I read that you are an August 22nd baby? Yes. I my stepdaughter's August 22nd. My grandmother was August 22nd. My mother-in-law's August 22nd and my late father-in-law was August 22nd. You're kidding me. I'm surrounded wow. by you all. <laughs> That's amazing. I have rarely met anybody with my birthday. Well, apparently they're attracted to Aquarians. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know if you have many Aquarians in your life, but I've got a lot of Leos, apparently. <laughs> well, I'm a Leo and I do have Aquarius rising, so that counts for a, a lot, I think. Well, that would definitely account for quite a bit. I think so, If if for those who believe in that, right? Yeah, for those who believe in that. Well, the first thing that I'd like to kind of do is start off with our shakedown, which is a set of short answer questions that we ask all of our guests. And I'm hoping okay. you're ready to shake it down. Sure. Let's go for it. Woohoo. Okay, here we go. This is the big one. Who was your first concert? <laughs> no, you're really going to laugh at this one. It was a review done here in Florence, Alabama with Fabian and Frankie Avalon and Bobby Rydell, along with many others. And I was madly in love with Fabian. So that was my first concert. And I think I was like 11 or 12, something like that. But I was in love. You know how that is. Who, who took you? Your parents? My parents. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, following that up, what was the first album you bought with your own money? 
Well, you know, I was thinking about that. I don't remember the first album that I bought, but I did buy a lot of singles, which was kind of what people did during that day, that the albums weren't so much the big thing back in the early 60s as the singles that came out. And so I was a big single buyer, and I bought all the hit records at the time or the ones that I could. So I can't say that I remember my first album. It probably was the Beatles or something like that by the time I was old enough and had the money enough to go and buy my own album. So for singles, which I'm assuming you're talking about 45s you were buying. 45s, yeah. Mm -hmm. And which one do you remember listening to the most? Oh, boy. There was Barbara Lewis, Baby I'm Yours, all the Shirelle stuff, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, and Dion in the Belmonts, that kind of thing. Freddie Cannon, all the things that were going on back in the early 60s. I was all about it. Love it. Well, which artist or band is in heavy rotation on your playlist right now? Well, and that's another question that's a a little different for me. I don't really have a rotation. I get to where I want to hear a certain thing. I remember something that stirs my memory and I, I... I put the album on or, but I don't just have a regular rotation of music. I just go with whatever I'm feeling at the time and what I want to hear. I'm kind of odd in that respect. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think that's odd. I think it's mood music, right? Yeah. And I'm so busy, like when I'm writing music and I've got other things on my mind. And, And a lot of times writers will tell you this. They don't want to be listening to other people's music while they're trying to come up with something creative because you don't want to be inventing the wheel a number of times. You want to try to be as newly creative as you can be. And so that's one of the reasons. But like a a general rotation, I ain't got one. (laughs) She ain't ain't got one, folks. Well, you know what? And, And power to you because, again, with your creative um, endeavors. I, I get it. I, I completely get it. You want to be, you want to feel fresh. Yeah. You want to feel fresh and you're not copying anybody or you're not coming up with something that you just heard it subconsciously. I just stay away from it. Got it. Well, our next question, which woman has had the most influence on your career? Now that is a big question there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, But I would have to say, if I went back to the beginning, it would be my friend Jeannie Green, who got me in the vocal group, that got me on all of these records that I did with all these people, and was my best friend at the time. And she was an amazing singer. She taught me everything I had not already learned about harmony and how to be a singer in a group, which is a whole different thing than being a soloist. Learning how to sing in a group is way different. You have to back yourself off or put yourself up front, depending on what the music needs. So it's a different mindset. And she taught me those little subtleties in um, how to be a singer. Now, did you two keep in touch through the years? Oh, yeah. Great. Absolutely. Great. Till the very end. I even spoke at her funeral. 
She was just an amazing person that I happened to meet at a very early age. At 17, I met her. And then very early on, we were doing all these records, hit records. <laughs> amazing. And I'm sorry, which year did she pass? Uh, three years ago, I think it was. Three years ago. Well, my condolences. Um, yeah. But what a beautiful lifelong relationship. Wonderful. Yeah. If you could have dinner with any woman dead or alive, who would it be? Okay, that's another one. There are probably a thousand women I would love to sit down and have dinner with. And I thought about that, and I, I would like to have dinner with this one or that one. Then I thought, well, let's just cut to the chase. Like, let's get down and deep. Okay. And so... <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll start off by saying, you know, last month was uh, uh, Women's History Month. And I do the work on the computer where I draw. And so I did this thing on women's history never ends. I drew a drawing of Queen Nefertiti. <laughs> and I thought, now that's going back somewhere. And so as I realized that I would be asked this question, I thought, okay, now, I can have live or dead talk to anyone having dinner with them. Who would that be? And then that reminded me of Queen Hatshepsut, who was the one and only female pharaoh in Egypt. Yes. And I've been big on the whole Egypt thing anyway. And I would just love to ask her, how did, how did you do that? How did you manage with all of those strong men and the behaviors of the time and the stigmas of the time, how, how did you pull that off? And obviously it was very hard for her because they cut off her nose on everything that was reminded of her. And I actually got to go to her palace or whatever you call it in Egypt. And she had to be a power to be reckoned with. That's all I can say. And I'm sure she would have a lot of questions for you too. I oh mean, yeah, yeah, uh, she would. What's the world like today? What you know? How yeah. have things changed, or how have they not changed? Okay, now I have a number two, and this is and this is going, this is going pretty far back too. I would like to have dinner with Mary Magdalene and say, what really happened? What really? What was the real deal? Because we have things that are written, but obviously that depends on the writer and perspective and all of that. What really happened? Right. Okay. Oh, yes, that would be. And, and, and we would have to take notes, maybe do a little recording on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are those are big ones. And I have to say, haven't heard those two before. That's a first. I bet you haven't. <laughs> All right. So here's our uh, final question of the shakedown. What is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? Now, that's the easiest question to answer because the most important thing to me that I believe is ongoing in my life, it's not that it hasn't been there before, but something that is still a desire and a goal of mine is that my children, my two boys, and at this point, I have one grandson, that they are excellent human beings. 
mm-hmm. and that they remain true to who they are. And to me, that is the measure of success, is that you remain true to who you are so that you don't have to look around for anything else. You've already got it. You know who you are. And for them to have that positivity in their life and be a good human being, that's still a goal of mine. And believe me, both my boys and my grandson are sterling human beings anyway. That would be my goal is to get to see them all the way through, remain who they are and be successful in that way. That's my goal. I love that sentiment. And today, as we're recording, um, is the day after Mother's Day. So I think that's relevant message right now for me and thinking about my kids and a lot of other women, especially with the pandemic and how we've been trying to hold steady and protect our families and come out on the other side, like you said, being, you know, kind of a sterling person and the best of who you could be. Exactly. I went into labor on Mother's Day with my youngest son. And every seven and every seven years, his birthday, which is today actually, uh, and Mother's Day fall on the same day. So he he's thirty eight today. Oh, which now which son is this? That's Kinsman. Kinsman. All right. So we need to mm-hmm. say happy birthday to Kinsman. We're going to be right back after this short message. Never miss an episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. Sign up for our Spotlight newsletter and get updates on new episodes, virtual and in-person events, and much more. Signing up is easy. Grab your phone, visit backstagechats.com, and click the newsletter link. And don't worry, we respect your privacy and your inbox. Sign up today and see who's in the spotlight. And we're back. Once again, we're chatting with Donna Jean Godshow McKay, and I'd like to kind of go back in time a little bit, well, uh, we'll say to childhood, because I am so curious about what life was like growing up in that Tennessee River community, where you had kind of this triangle, this musical triangle of Muscle Shoals, Nashville, and Memphis. Mm-hmm. What would you, How would you describe your childhood in that area at that time? Well, if I may, I'll go back to my first recollection musically of what really got me going is I wanted a piano really, really bad. And my dad was in the army and we moved a lot, so I couldn't get a piano and we couldn't afford one at the same time. But I just would cry and cry that I needed, I needed, I needed a musical instrument. And I was six years old. And so my mother, bless her dear little heart, she set on a table a bunch, I don't remember how many, glasses of the same kind on this table and filled them up each to different levels with water. And then she gave me a spoon. And when I would hit one of them, it would have a certain note. And if I hit the other one, which had more water in it, I got another note. And I sat and sat and wrote songs on those glasses (laughs) when I was six years old. And I remember that distinctly. I guess I have always known that I loved music and I was going to be a singer. And there was just nothing else was possible for me. That was, I guess, the beginning 
And what about the community around you? How would you describe the music and how it reflected your community? And I guess social times, because the 50s and 60s had a lot of social upheaval happening and change going on. How was your community Mm -hmm. reflecting that? Well, it was a multi-level thing. You know, down here in the South, we were dealing with the things that we were dealing with and still dealing with. But in the midst of any upheaval or or anything that was going on nationally or internationally, there were a core of us musicians and singers and just music people that for some unknown reason that still can't be explained, a music revolution rose up in this little podunk area of Northwest Alabama. And there are so many musicians that I heard at one time that there were more here in this little area than anywhere in the United States. Now, that's per capita. Something was happening here musically. A lot of the people that weren't musical were oblivious to what was going on. And we're really still oblivious until that movie Muscle Shoals came out and they go, wow, we didn't know that all happened here. But there was a group of us who were not going to be denied. Music was our thing. And we were birds of a feather that flocked together. And so we were always at the studio together. And so what came up naturally was very organic. We grew up together literally. For instance, when I was 12 years old, I wrote a song, played the piano, and sung it on our local TV station here in a talent contest and won that contest when I was 12. All right. And then some of the guys who were, well, who are now known as the Swampers, the Muscle Shoals Swampers, they were older than me. I was like the kid. But I was in love with David Hood, who is the bass player at 13 years old. So when I say we grew up together, it's not an exaggeration. So many times the musicians in the area would be writing songs at Fame Recording on their grand piano there in the studio. And I would go in. I was head cheerleader. Sometimes I would just rush from cheerleader practice to get to the studio so I could hear what was going on. And and I just had studio fever. I wanted to be in the studio all the time. What was the reaction of you walking into the studio in a cheerleader uniform? They still talk about it today. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> I mean, that's not something you hear about every day. No, they still talk about that. I'm sorry to laugh, but... Well, I uh, I just always think of, you know, the musician groups and the artists being so different than, you know, stereotypically, so different than the cheerleaders or the so-called popular people. So (laughs) I can imagine the look of surprise when Donna Jean comes running in. (laughs) Well, and another thing is when I would have to cheer at a ball game and I had a recording session the next day, I would mouth the cheers so that I didn't get hoarse because I had to sing the next day. So my life was, at that time, Theo, was very, very complicated. Yes, well, especially for a teenager. And as a teenager, my life has gone through 
more than I could ever talk about in this interview. Believe me, after everything I've read, yes, we would need to do parts two, three, and four, I think. (laughs) But certainly, I I mean, I know that one of the biggest impacts of your life as a teenager was your Southern Comfort trio, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about Southern Comfort. Well, that started with Jeannie Green. She was the leader. She was the one who really put the thing together and made it happen. So we were these four girls who were singers. And of course, Jeannie and I were together all the time. I think the other two girls lived in Nashville. Or Jeannie and I were together 24-7. And we were, would sing all the time and did anything musical that we could do. She put together this voice group called Southern Comfort. And we were session vocalists is what we were. And so we just started doing sessions. And before that, I had done demos like at Fame Recording, demos for other people to sing the songs and, you know, that kind of thing. And then eventually, when I joined the group, we started out pretty big, starting with the album of When a Man Loves a Woman and going from there to... You said a few of the names, you know, in the inter- introduction. I mean, we've, we had Dwayne Allman, and the one that I really, really want to ask you about, Yeah, Cher. Cher was wonderful. She was with Sonny at that point, and she was very demure and, and lovely. She was lovely, and we really hit it off. I actually gave her my autograph. Oh! And I said, one of these days, I'm going to be famous, Cher. Oh, that's fabulous. (laughs) And she said, she said, I'm going to take this and put it on my frame it and put it on my wall. Oh, that is so amazing. Now, have you talked to her since? I have not. I've not talked to her since. When I was little, I used to pull up my little footstool in front of the television with pickles. I don't know. I had this thing about pickles. And I watched Sonny and Cher, the Sonny and Cher show every week, mm-hmm. every week, religiously. And my mom let me grow my hair out really long like Cher's. <laughs> I'm just tickled pink that you had that interaction with her at such an early part in your career. And it was still early in her career. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. Like I said, she was very demure and very open and just a real lovely is the way I would describe her. She was lovely inside and out. And I was utterly amazed as the years went by to see her rear end hanging out of some of the clothes (laughs) she was wearing. Because I I think once the separation from Sunny came, she was like Mm -hmm. released and more power to her. And more power to her. Continuing yeah. along the era of recordings, I had to laugh because when I started talking to people about what they would want to know, speaking with Donna Jean Godshow McKay, I thought the first thing that everybody would shoot at me was working with Jerry Garcia and being on the road with Grateful Dead and all that. And you know what? I have to say, most of the initial reactions were, we want to hear about Elvis. <laughs> Well, I don't blame them. (laughs) (laughs) Another very handsome man. Let me put it this way. He's the most gorgeous creature that I ever met in my whole life, male or female. I mean, to look at him was like looking at the sun or something. I mean, he was so beautiful. 
And at the time that we recorded with him, it was before he started going down. He was just an amazing person. And not only that, not only the way he looked, but he was so kind to us and so encouraging when we were recording. And he listened to our voices individually, and he was in the control room. Priscilla was there as well. And Mm -hmm. she's no dirt bag either. She's gorgeous. He was just very kind and very sweet man. And so I, I think I have got to see people at their best. And I'm very grateful for that. Because, you know, I get to take up for Cher, and I get to take up for Elvis, and I get to take up for these people, you know, who, who've had some demise later on in their life and uh, and know that that's not the way that it always was. That's right. And I'm glad, I'm happy about that. And you got a message to Elvis many years later. I did. As a matter of fact, when we were singing with, or when I was singing with uh, the Garcia band, the Jerry Garcia band, Ron Tut was the drummer in the Garcia band at that time. As well, he was Elvis's road drummer. Most of the time, we never even talked about Elvis. You know, we just didn't go there. We had other things we were doing. You know, the Garcia band was an entity in itself, and we just didn't spend a lot of time doing that. And so there was this one time we were making the album, I believe it was Cats Under the Stars. Tut was going to have to leave early because he was doing some shows with Elvis. And I said, Tut, I don't know why I'm asking you to do this at this time, but when you see Elvis again, would you tell him I said hello? Because we did sing on several of his hit records, you know, Suspicious Minds being one of them and in the ghetto. And I said, would you just tell him I said hello? And he said, yeah, I'll do that. And then it was only a few days later, and I can't remember exactly the length of time, but I had emergency surgery and I was waking up in my room after recovery and I got a phone call and it was Ron Tut. And he said, Donna Elvis died. And he said, I got to see him before he passed, and I told him what you said, and he said, well, tell her I remember her, and I hope I get to see her again one day. And, uh, I mean, I can't follow that with anything much. Via Woods' conversation with special guest Donna Jean Godshow continues in the next episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. Backstage Chats with Women in Music is a production of Horizon Music Foundation, a nonprofit based in Austin, Texas. Giving credit where credit is due, we'd like to thank folks for their contributions to this episode, including Donna Jean Godshow and the Tricksters for the song Shelter, Chloe Brown for audio production and editing. Bianca Garcia and her interns Essence and Caleb for social media support, and Pond5 for our theme music. Your donations make this podcast possible. Please visit horizonmusic.org to donate today. This podcast is the property of Horizon Music Foundation and is protected by copyright law. Use of this podcast is for personal and non-commercial purposes only. No other use of this production, including and without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing may be made without prior consent from the Horizon Music Foundation. Submit all requests to info at horizonmusic.org.